Stephen Derlauf is an economist, not an English professor. But some of his work owes an indirect debt to one of the best books of the 20th century, The Great Gatsby. I'm Gatsby. What does economics have to do with the novel? Or, for that matter, with the 2013 movie starring Leonardo DiCaprio? Well, if there's one thing economists like to talk about, it's inequality. And there's plenty of that in Gatsby's world. Look around you. Rich girls don't marry poor boys. In the book, Jay Gatsby pulls himself out of poverty to become fabulously wealthy. He becomes much richer than his parents, and for that matter, most people in the country. In Professor Derloff's world, that first fact is called intergenerational inequality, and the second is called cross-sectional inequality. What he's interested in is the intersection of the two. You know, inequality itself is a, you know, a, it, it can be measured in many different ways. We often think about inequality cross-sectionally. Why are some wages higher than others? Why are hedge fund managers and the upper, upper tail receiving such uh, high compensation? A different type of inequality is intergenerational mobility. In other words, to what extent uh, children from families with different uh, socioeconomic backgrounds have, have opportunities to, to succeed. And so the membership's theory uh, actually gives some insight into the relationship between those two. And that's exactly what I, I work on in this paper called Understanding the Great Gatsby Curve. Welcome to another episode of Radio Harris. This time we're talking to Professor Derlauf about the different kinds of equality that exist in the United States and exactly what we can learn from the ways they intersect. Stay with us. Stephen Derlauf is the Staines Professor in Educational Policy at the Harris School. He didn't invent this thing called the Great Gatsby Curve. It's the brainchild of another academic named Miles Korak. Korak looked at advanced industrialized economies around the world, and what he found was that economies that had a lot of cross-sectional equality also tended to have a lot of intergenerational mobility. In other words, People who lived in these places tended to make the same amount of money relative to each other, and they tended to do better financially than their parents did. Unfortunately, in other economies, the opposite was also true. What the Great Gatsby Curve's finding was, was that those countries that had more inequality cross-sectionally were less mobile. There seemed to be a greater tying of the child's prospects to those of the parent. And so in that sense, it got a lot of political attention uh, when it first came out because it suggested that the American self-image was not factually correct. That is, the conventional wisdom that in the U.S. anyone can pull themselves up by their bootstraps didn't seem to be true. Jay Gatsby may have been able to become much richer than his parents, despite all the cross-sectional inequality going on around him. His parents were dirt poor farmers from North Dakota. He never accepted them as his parents at all. In his own imagination, he was a son of God, destined for future glory. But Korak's findings indicated that this fictional depiction just doesn't translate to the real world, at least not in the United States. What Derloff has done is look at the Great Gatsby Curve and try to pry out some of the mechanisms within it. And one of those mechanisms, a big one, is segregation. as a society becomes more unequal, one of the consequences of that is it becomes increasingly segregated. 
And so as the income distribution spreads out, what you would expect is that neighborhoods would become more uh, economically segregated because the incentives for more affluent families to isolate themselves become higher. Well, the incentives uh, are going to be at, at several levels. One of them is, is typically uh, a desire. So, so one e easy example would have to do with the tax base. In other words, that uh, you know, one reason that, that I mentioned that uh, neighborhoods may ban apartments is the people in there will pay the tax base will be uh, weaker with respect to the resources for public schools. A different exam idea would be the general belief, fair or not, uh, of more affluent fam families thinking that the peers and the role models of other <laughs> from other affluent families uh, have relative benefits. And so, you know, one could go through this in many different ways. If you ask the question, what what happens if you if you spread out the uh, distribution of uh, of high school achievement or test scores? Again, you could think about incentive. You know, the process of assigning kids to colleges could also increase the amount of segregation by by high school uh, attainment, et cetera. And so, the the general principle would be that that there's often incentives for like. To be with like. Of course, it's not just neighborhoods and schools that are segregated, it's workplaces too. If we think about what determines the degrees of, of, of segregation or uh, integration of different skill types at firms, it has to do with the way people interact with each other. In other words, it's not a matter that we sit in cubicles in isolation and, and work, and so the product of the firm is the sum of all of that. There's an idea in, in economics called complementarity which is you know, often argued to be a part of the productive process. So what does that word mean? It means that if, um, if I'm with really productive people, then the value of my being productive is higher than otherwise. So in other words, there's a, there's a synergy of a very particular type mathematically. In the presence of those synergies, there are powerful incentives for, uh, for the more skilled workers to be matched for the more skilled workers and have an extremely highly productive firm, which means people are then left over. And so in my, my vision of, of this process, of, of the Gatsby curve, increased segregation uh, emerges from an increased inequality. If you increase segregation, that actually slows down mobility because it means that uh, kids from different back socioeconomic backgrounds go to have very different environments in which they develop. They go to different schools, they live in different residential neighborhoods, uh, and the like. And so the cross-sectional inequality, because it increases segregation, begets lower mobility. And so my, the perspective that I have on the Gatsby curve is that inequality generates segregation. Segregation itself then generates inequality, but it's across time. And so it's the parents' inequality generates segregation, and that induces inequality for the prospects of the children. It's not a cheerful conclusion. They're not, you know, nothing's deterministic. People are not trapped, literally. But when you sort of think about, is there some chance that all the contemporary inequality will simply <laughs> be replicated generation after generation? The answer turns out to be yes. Now, it might sound as if Durlauf's model is a fatalistic one, as if there's no room for personal choice. But that's not quite right, he says. It's a system, and what the system is going to have built into it, uh, you know, in, in describing what happens collectively, is there'll be sets of private incentives. People make choices now. You know, we can disagree on what m motivates a choice, but they make choices, and, they, and there's some heterogeneity in the incentives. Other incentives are social. You know, we, we, live, in, we live in environments in which th everything from peer effects to role models to norms and the like, they all affect our behavior. And so if you 
put all of these ingredients together, admittedly, lots of stuff abstracted away, you find you, you end up with these these interesting properties, which is that there's a complicated interplay between the nature of the private incentives people face, the nature of the social influences, and what the community looks like collectively in terms of its outcomes. And so the reason I, I sort of go through this digression with you is it says that it isn't adequate to talk about lack of opportunity, that's the private incentive, nor is it adequate to say the community could pull itself up by its bootstraps and there's some social pathology there and then therefore the, you say it's, it's, you know, in the unkind formulation of that it's the, the community's fault. There's no need for an external incentive. It all moves together in complicated ways. And if I, I'll give a, an analogy, uh, which is, you know, the property of ice, that's about a lot of water molecules, not just one in isolation. And uh, it turns out in a strange way or, that, uh, that's not all that different than asking what a poverty trap is. It's like a configuration of people where it's hard for anything to move. So what do we do about it? So one of the, the, the obvious policy uh, recommendation would be to promote uh, integration of, uh, of the educational process. That could mean everything from uh, having zoning rules which uh, facilitate economic integration to the rules at which you assign kids to schools. Uh, and the like. And so I think that from the perspective of this paper, the obvious things would come in, promote economic integration of schools, equalize school expenditures, and, and the like. In other words, if we think of, of, of communities as producing different educational experiences for kids, depending on where they live, then the easy answer is <laughs> diminish the, uh, those heterogeneities. To make sure you don't miss an episode of Radio Harris, subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud. And please check out our other podcast, Day One, which features students, alumni, and faculty using the Harris approach to make an impact in the world from their very first day at Harris and years beyond. That's it for today. This episode of Radio Harris was produced by me, Ann Ford.